In this very special episode, I speak to the women who changed the world with their anti-nuclear protests at Green and Common in the 80s. Here's Chris Drake on activism. We need to realise that nothing changes when you ignore it. And that's what Greenham taught me. We didn't ignore it. We could have gone home. We could have said, well, it's nothing to do with us, but it's to do with all of us. I also review the new documentary Mothers of the Revolution, which is the story of Greenham Common with two top critics. Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. I'm going to get that gun of mine and I'm going to change you from a rooster to a hen with one shot. Some people call me a freak. I hate that word. I don't believe in it. Better yet, I don't believe in labels. You know, I think you're the only girl in the world that can stand on a stage with a spotlight in her eye and still see a diamond inside a man's pocket. Because I'm up at five every morning working my ass off. Does someone want to just tell me to my face you're never going to give me the scores I deserve? Welcome to Girls on Film. I'm your host, Anna Smith. And this episode is in partnership with Mothers of the Revolution, which is available now on digital download. Directed by Briar March, the feature-length documentary tells the story of the extraordinary women behind the Greenham Common Peace Camp in the UK in the 1980s. The whole nuclear threat was very much out there. The importance of non-violent protest is even more significant in this day and age, if you look at what's happening around the world. Young people today have got some unbelievably difficult decisions that are going to affect them in their world. Thank God for those Greenham women. I think we're at the tipping point now where everybody is starting to wake up. Narrated by Glenda Jackson, Mothers of the Revolution tells how these women challenged world leaders, altering the course of history and inspiring millions as the world's first and biggest female-only demonstration, preceded only by the suffragettes. And we have two of them on the show today, Rebecca Johnson and Chris Drake. First up, here to review the film with me are film critics Angie Erigo and Karina Antrobus. Welcome, Angie and Karina, both back to Girls on Film. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us, indeed. Well, listen, for those who don't know you, why don't you give me a little intro, Angie, you first. I marched in the 60s. I marched in the 60s. <laughs> <laughs> but alas, I was not at Greenham Common because I was by then a busy um, film publicist, at, well, publicist in the music industry and film. And then I went back to journalism, having been a baby rock journalist for New Musical Express back in the day. I've been a film critic for hmm, quite a few years, done a bit of broadcasting and uh, always like to think of myself as an international woman of mystery. But as soon as I open my mouth, that cover is blown. And here (laughs) I am with a great interest in uh, what women are doing in film now. Excellent. Thank you very much, Karina. Hi, I am a sometimes film critic when I have the time. My full-time job is cultural development manager for my borough, where I was born and bred. I'm currently very busy with programming and curating Black History Season, which is keeping me very busy and very excited. But yes, also the founder of the Bechtel Test Fest, which has been going on for about seven, maybe maybe eight years now, which is crazy. But uh, we champion films that not only pass the very low bar of the Bechtel Test, but also have positive dynamic roles for men in and on film. Excellent. Well, you are both extremely well qualified to discuss this. I'm super excited to discuss this film with you. This is the story of the ordinary women who helped end the Cold War. The arms race was between two powers. You can't just focus on one without looking at the other. It's a dance. 
Corinne, let me start with you. What did you know about Green and Common before you saw this? Okay, so this you've gone straight in with the embarrassment here because... That's fine. It's because a lot of people don't know about it. I'm so amazed at how little I knew about this. And I actually sent a message to my girlfriend's WhatsApp group and just said, guys, just out of interest, have you heard of the Green and Common women's group? You know, I was just like, it was not, not a trick question, just genuinely interested. And yeah, nobody knew. And there are bits and pieces that throughout the film, like certain songs that were sung or certain paraphernalia about the whole campaign that popped up that triggered certain memories because my mum was very much of that movement of taking us to rallies. And, you know, she, she I haven't actually asked her. I'm sure if I even begin, she'll tell me the whole history and she was probably there at some point. But short answer, no, embarrassingly. And why the hell not? Exactly. That's why this documentary needs to exist. I mean, myself, I grew up in the 80s aware of it and seeing tabloid headlines, some of which are tackled in the film, which I think were misleading. And I know that Hedda, our co-founder and executive producer, was there and spent a Christmas there. So that's super exciting. So we've been talking about that. Angie, what about yourself? You said you marched and you weren't there, but I mean, presumably you were very aware of Greenham Common. Yes, indeed. I mean, I think it's an, partly an age thing. I was very aware of it from the beginning right through and very sympathetic to them. I had no, there were a lot of things I learned in this documentary. I, I never knew that the movement literally started around a kitchen table at a mum's house in Wales and the way it grew internationally was uh, really fascinating. It touches on so many things that are still relevant now. Absolutely. I mean, Karina, what did you take away from it that feels relevant now? What I thought was so interesting is exactly, as you said, the fact that this movement started from a kitchen table, the fact that this movement started with women and the actual orchestrated idea to make it just women so that they could feel safe and do what it is that they need to do to to make genuine change. I thought it was such an interesting campaign on such on so many different levels, just in my experience of sort of running small campaigns myself at work like they did this without social media and I did a little bit into the research and I don't know if you remember chain mails it was the kind of thing that I had as a kid and you would just send it to your friends that's how a lot of the communications actually took part that's how a lot of these women suddenly organized and got together so they chain letters to clarify for the really young listeners that don't remember yeah. this. yeah oh my God. <laughs> you, know, the, right? you wrote it by hand and you then you had to send it to someone else and they had to send it on and send it on so the, the organization and the sustainment of this campaign that went on for years and then the way that it managed to infiltrate on an international scale is just so inspiring and also the way that they understood that they needed allies with Russia so it wasn't just them going we can fix everything because you can't and then I think a lot of people forget that you need allies you need to communicate with people in order to make change and that's one of the biggest things for me that, that, that you can make change but you need people to do it with you so this was a collective effort and I think that gets lost in a lot of the telling of history there's always like this one person at the front but this was a communal effort. One of the very interesting things in this film is that it's kind of a good blueprint and still holds true for creating a grassroots movement and I was really interested and and pleased that they acknowledged the lessons they learned from the suffragists of when they needed to make an impact and when they needed to do something big and and how they needed to reach out to other people. They had learned their lessons from their, you know, that their grandmothers had taught them. And so it goes by. I mean, you can go back a long way to I I thought the title was slightly misleading Mothers of the Revolution, because I think of the suffragists. I think of 
Ellen Waddington, the, the firebrand from the North who was front and center in the Jarrow March. I think of, you know, Angela Davis and Kathleen Cleaver in the 60s. And one of the big takeaways for this that women through generations need to know and need to remember was the, the remark that one of the Russian women in the film made. Don't think you're too little to do big things. There was a lot of, I thought, very Instagrammable quotes at the very <laughs> beginning and end. And I just thought these would look great on an Instagram thing. Yeah. Like, like, put it out on a T-shirt. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good idea. They should do it for that campaign. I don't know if they are, but yeah. You know what? Even when you were talking there, Angie, I was getting goosebumps. And I think there's so many moments in this film where I just felt really emotional. And the sort of spintingly, oh, wow, the power of women working together, the power of discovery. And as you say, the empowerment that comes from that. Um, what was the most emotional moment for you? My feeling was there were some tough moments that might be a bit triggering. So obviously bear that in mind for the listeners. Briar March, the director, who's developing quite a re reputation for being empathetic and fierce. She's done a wonderful documentary called There Once Was an Island, which is an, about climate change. And she did one called A Place to Call Home, which is about homelessness. She has used the technique of mixing archive footage contemporary interviews, and dramatic reconstruction. And I wasn't terribly keen on the dramatic reconstruction in most places, but there is a sequence in which one of the women tells us about being dragged by a group of policemen, not to a police station, but in the middle of the night into the base at Greenham Common, where she was subjected to quite horrifying verbal and physical abuse. They stood around making jokes about raping her. They beat her. They threw hot coffee over her. And we see this being done to an actress. And she took them to court and she won. The judge ruled that they had that their behavior was disgraceful. There were many points in this film when I was weeping, but I was really upset by that. That's right. That was Chris Drake, who we're actually going to be hearing from later in this episode. So we'll be speaking to her about that. And I agree, Angie, that was incredibly powerful and distressing sequence. I think that opening sequence where it's a very busy kitchen table and they're all very, one's got a phone in their hand, another one's printing something, another one's feeding the kids and all of that. I think that was a good mood setter, personally. Because, you know, with documentaries, it's always the, the battle of how do we avoid just a talking heads movie. So with that in mind, I'm very sympathetic for the different ways in which she's used the tools that she's used to tell this story. But yes, I'm, I'm always a bit wary of reenactments. But I, I think because there was so much, there's so much to say. This could be a, a whole... 12 part series focusing on each individual woman or in each individual year even so I think she kind of had to do what she had to do and because unfortunately this is one of the few documentaries about this you get that issue of one film or that one documentary taking on that massive weight and then always you get the people going well they should have focused on this it's like well this is the one one we have so this proves that we need more people to tell these stories but in answer to your question the most emotional things yeah the individual, the talking heads of just the women re remembering those moments when they actually stopped to breathe and take in the emotion and the weight of what they were contributing to and how it was personally affecting them and why they were doing it. So there was one particular woman that was, managed to get into one of the tanks and she saw the button and she knew that it was that simple to push a button and cause the most amount of destruction and she just thought about her kids and I was like that is such an emotional raw point that it was, it was very moving. It's interesting that 
you know, femininity and motherhood and just the existence of being a woman is does seem to crop up a lot very naturally as these women talk in this film. Angie, would you like to speak to that a bit and in particular just about the way the difference in having women working together towards a common goal? Strange to think that as little as 40 years ago, a lot of these women felt that they had no voice and that women were still to some extent supposed to be the people who stayed at home and were the caregivers at home and all that kind of stuff. But throughout history, women are like lionesses when it comes to their children. And it brought home very forcefully the drive that that a lot of these women had and the sacrifice that they ended up making, some of them, all revolved around their children. I, I think it was Chris who said at one point that she'd started this whole thing for her children and she ended up having to lose her children, having to give the custody of her children to her husband because she was facing the prospect of going to prison now, I think we live in such a, an era where we're encouraged to be self-obsessed and navel-gazing and, and social influencing and all of that sort of stuff that it's interesting to think of that primal primal thread that runs through femininity. Another thing that struck me was that where the, the more things change, the more they don't, was that when the media turned on the women, they were using they they were being encouraged by the politicians of the era to smear these women to smear the campaign they were sexualized in the most negative possible ways in the media these women were described not as concerned mothers but as harpies as shrews those nasty and ooh lesbians <laughs> sort of thing um it's so much so that it provoked vigilante men emboldened them to invade the camp, assault women, injure women, brandish shotguns. It provoked the kind of response that a, a male and female campaign would not have. But it was interesting at which points they decided to invite men to be allies. But the fact that it was very much a women's movement, I think, is still a very inspiring thing and something lessons to be drawn on, on what women can achieve. There were a lot of very shocking moments, as you say, in this film. But I also I feel that there is a very positive, uplifting tone as well in general. I mean, Karina, would you like to speak to that in terms of what you think this leaves you with? What kind of mood this film leaves you with? It certainly inspired me to know, well, first and foremost, it inspired me to get my history straight and tell everyone about it because... We need to know that this happened and we need to know that it isn't just the suffragette movement that we should be hailing and the intricacies of this particular moment in, well, this moment's momentous chapter of history. It's huge. One of the things about the end, the wrap up, I, I, I'm still on the fence on it because I think throughout the film, we were talking about this collective movement and how it's all been done as a, as a group. But then at the end, we've there's, it's only kind of touched upon that and we've had very specific people. So at the end, we have... For instance, Greta Thunberg as, a, as somebody that would kind of pin that hopes on. But, you know, where are her allies? Who is doing that work with her? But yes, they, you know, we we got the we got a nice sort of cosy wrap up of, you know, yes, the Me Too movement and yes, Black Lives Matter. And yes, there's, these protests is important. So I don't know. I think there could have been more of that. But then again, it, the, the film was doing a lot. The film was definitely doing well. This is one of the problems. As you said, Corinna, it could be a 12-part television series. It, it bites off a lot. And there are things, there are certain aspects you'd like to explore a bit more. There are other aspects where you feel they kind of belabor the point. But throughout the film, from the origins of this particular movement 
through the way they met each obstacle as it came head on to the aftermath and the very, very belated recognition from, say, Gorbachev, that they had played a role in the INF Treaty. I drew an inspiration from this. I did think it was galvanizing because, yet again, this really brought home the point that it's easy to succumb to despair. It's easy to succumb to a feeling of complete helplessness. You sit in your you know, home watching TV thinking, well, what can I do about the climate? What can I do about Afghanistan? What can I do about you know, brutality against women? What can I do about racial injustice? This reminds us all that that together we can do something. Absolutely. And the fact that they did it without all the tools that we have now and the fact that we are entering what could be a very real apocalypse, that we don't have to just sit here and go, well, somebody else will sort it out, won't they? Because they might not. They probably won't. So we have to do something now. So, yes, there was absolutely this thread of enthusiasm throughout. And I guess also just mothers, like mothers throughout the world and throughout representation, they just have not been given enough positive representation to how powerful they can be, even with a baby strapped to their boobs. (laughs) It's like, is there anything we can't do? Amen to that. Um, To wrap up. I would like to ask you both, who would you recommend Mothers of the Revolution to? Well, anyone with with any interest in social history, but also anyone who's concerned about anything that's going on in the world at the moment, it gives you heart. It's a, a lesson in how you can, you know, get up and stand up. <laughs> and start another revolution. Yeah, absolutely. And and young people in particular who we need to know our history it can be really learned from and inspired and hopefully inspire the next people that are going to save us. <laughs> and it's certainly not just for women by any means. I hope I hope a lot of men and young boys will go see this or be shown it by their mums. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. And this is my worry with a lot of films that are too framed as feminist because a lot of men kind of seem like they can't watch it. But, you know, in, in my experience, in my circles, I, I do have, uh, a lot of men that are very <laughs> enthusiastic about it but yes on the on the broader strokes of it I, I do hope that men who see it tell their mates to watch it as well yes and um as you've both said we all need allies this film makes that very clear and we have plenty of male allies listening right now so thank you to you all and thank you Angie and Corinna for joining us today it's been such a pleasure, thank, pleasure thank, you. thank you thanks a lot Anna I said I think we should go to Russia there was this group in the Soviet Union. They were the Russian counterparts of the Green and Women. The government and KGB consider us dissidents. And there's a car behind us with all these guys just looking at us. I've never had a tail before. That was the first time and I was really scared. There are consequences. I've thought about my children. For a moment, you thought that you'd failed. That was Angie Erigo and Karina Andrebus. My next guests are two of the incredible women who made all this happen and who are featured in the doc. First up, I spoke to activist Chris Drake about her part in the movement and the film. Chris, welcome to Girls on Film. Thank you. Thank you for... uh inviting me. Well, I've just seen the film and it is extraordinary and I'm in awe of what you did. Fantastic. Oh, thank you. I enjoyed the film. It's an excellent film. It is. It's very inspiring. I remember reading about Green Economy in the news when I was a kid and seeing it on the news, but our younger team was saying that they didn't really know much about it. It's not been talked about enough since it happened. 
Why do you think that is? Because it was the first ever uh, women, well, it became a women-only demonstration. And I think society still today doesn't want women to believe that they're strong and powerful beings. And we were strong and we were powerful and we did change a major thing in the world. And, And I think that's really why, for me anyway, I think had it been a men's camp, maybe everybody would know about it. But it was women. I think society tries to keep us down and not empower us. So when we empower ourselves, they don't want to know. I think that's sadly very true, Chris. But I'm so glad that you've made this documentary. Why did you want to take part in the doc when you heard about it? I am a working class woman and I I had been brought up to believe that You know, I didn't have a a voice as such that I guess I would be subservient and that um, I didn't have any power and that a man would look after me. I went to Greenham in the first instance because I have three children and I went to see a film called The War Game, which would terrified me. It was about the aftermath of a nuclear war and this film had been banned for 25 years, so... When I saw the film, I immediately thought of my children. So that was the main reason why I went to Greenham. To, because I feel as a mother that it, you have a responsibility to children that you bring into the world, not just to feed them and to clothe them, but to shape a world that's fit for them to live in, where they can contribute and they can grow. That's why I ended up... Uh, sitting at the fire at Greenham Common. How would you describe the atmosphere at Greenham Common? I call it the place where I was born because it was a place where um, I I had a voice. I could talk about anything. I could have an opinion. I realised my strength as a woman and it was all new to me. I mean, when I say I found my voice, I, I spoke in Trafalgar Square, I spoke at Miners Galas, I went with other women to Geneva other women from camp to Geneva. I, I, we broke into the Russian embassy and I, the four of us spoke to the arms negotiators. I mean, it, it's hard to believe even now that, that all of those things happened and so much more. And we protected each other. We were there. There was an, a foreign army. There was the British army. There was the police. But we, we took care of each other and we did it with, with imagination and with humour and with song. And all of this was was so very new. And it was amazing. That's so lovely. Um, th- this really comes across in the film as well, that humour and that spirit. And also in the film, you talk about being able to be openly lesbian at Greenham. Why do you think it was a much more accepting community back then rather than the wider society? Well, I, get, I think back then it wasn't that there was this notion that everybody that came to Greenham uh, was a lesbian. And that if you weren't, you would be become a lesbian when once you came to live at Greenham somehow. <laughs> it was in the water, I guess. I knew that I was a lesbian when I was 11. But as a working class woman, I, I remember my dad saying over and over again, well, Chris doesn't need an education, even though I passed my 11 plus, because she's going to get married and she's going to have kids. And you, you had your life mapped out for you. And it was really difficult. During that time, there were no lesbian lines. There was no one to talk to. You couldn't discuss your feelings with anybody. And I had a friend, my best friend. She had a baby. And I'd come up from camp and uh, we were walking. She was pushing the baby in the pram. And I came out to her 
And she said, don't ever come near my child again. And I never, I've never seen her to this day. There was those sorts of things. But I also had broken ribs and broken arms and attacked by men who were uh, hated lesbians because they were strong women. And a lot of men, not all men, but a lot of men don't like strong women. So, and I guess that's the other thing about safety. Going to Greenham, I could be myself. I could be a lesbian. I could be proud of being a lesbian with so many other women who were straight and gay, but who were amazing. So it it changed my life in massive, massive ways. You just now described some very scary moments. And also in the film, you talk about some things which are quite terrifying. Is there one that stands out in your mind as the moment where you felt very, very scared? It was a tea room incident when I actually felt very, very scared because I was taken into the base and I was alone. And I knew when they took me into the building by the main gate that something bad was going to happen. And and something bad did happen there. But even though I was terrified, I was never going to let them know I was terrified. I was determined from when they finally stopped assaulting me and burning me, they they let me go. Uh, they took me out of the base and dropped me, you know, at the side of the fence. But I I knew that I was going to, I, that I was strong enough because I was a greener woman. And even though I cry about it now and I cried about it when I saw the film and it took me right back there to that tea room, I knew that I was strong enough to make them pay for what they'd done. And um, when the case did come to court, because I spent years getting the case to court, uh, when the judge looked at them and said, um, you assaulted this woman, you're, you're a disgrace to your uniform, I was like, yes, I did, I did that. They did, they were cruel and they hurt me, but I was stronger than them. I was a strong woman and I still am. You are absolutely amazing, Chris. I'm in awe of you. You're incredible. What would you say to young women listening now who want to be activists? I'd say believe in yourself. Don't let anybody have you believe that you're not powerful as a woman. Don't let anybody let you think that there's anything that you can't do. I mean, maybe there's there's things you can't do, but don't let anybody let you think that it's not worth a go, it's not worth a try. Still, I think young women today are brought up to believe in in a society and sometimes even in their own homes that they're not, you know, that there is a life mapped out for them. But really, they can be anything that they want to be. And I think we do a disservice to to our daughters when we we tell them that they can't do that when we don't say that to male children, when we don't say that to their brothers. So that's the message that I would give to women today. And if you believe in something, fight for it. If you believe that what's happening around the world in, in within the climate change, if you look, say, at countries in the world where they're still in... 2021 people are occupied, where people are murdered and imprisoned in their own land. You know, there's so many things to fight. And once we stop fighting, we are saying that we 
support what's happening in the world, what's happening in this country. There's terrible things happening here with the present government and we all have a responsibility and and we need to all, whether we're young girls, young boys, older people, you know, men, women, we need to realise that nothing changes when you ignore it. And that's what Greenham taught me. We didn't ignore it. We could have gone home, we could have said, you know, well, it's nothing to do with us, but it's to do with all of us. I think we need to let women know, we need to encourage women and girls to believe that you know, we have a responsibility in the world and, and we're strong enough and we're powerful enough to pick up that gauntlet and to change things. I mean, I remember when we were, when I was at Greenham and we used to go on where I lived in Nottinghamshire, we we did lots of Take Back the Night marches and Lesbian Strength marches. And the last Lesbian Strength march I went on was um, three years ago in Leeds. And there was a number of us. They, they weren't like the massive marches we used to have. We had to have police protection because of the people in that were around were shouting obscenities, men, I would say. So we just need to realise our potential. <laughs> I think uh, as women, uh, so many women haven't realised that. And I, I guess the best example I can give you, a woman came down to Greenham for the weekend. She came to Bluegate, which was where I live, was sitting around the fire and she was really, really quiet, didn't speak, just listened. Sunday evening, she was leaving, and I asked her, will you come back and see us again? And uh, she said no. And I said, well, why is, why is that? What happened to you here that you couldn't come back? And she said, because I'm too afraid to come back. If I come back, I have to change my whole life, and I'm too afraid to do that. Well, we all have to stop being afraid. And we all have to change our lives and try and try and work with other people who, who are trying to change theirs. Otherwise, we all will suffer the same fate. That is such an incredible message. I feel moved and inspired by that, and I'm sure our listeners will too, um, just as I have been with the film and your contribution. Thank you so much again. It's been so wonderful to talk to you, Chris. Thank you. We were much, much closer to nuclear war than with the Cuban Missile Crisis. The risks of doing nothing were greater than the risks of doing something. If you want to change something in the world, then you just go ahead. Don't wait for directions. If you always do as you're told, then you don't ever change anything. These women changed our future. That was the fabulous Chris Drake. Finally, here's Rebecca Johnson. Thank you very much for inviting me. Oh, well, congratulations on being part of a fantastic documentary and even more importantly, an incredibly important movement. We were all very moved by this film. There's a couple of specific things I wanted to ask you that come up in, in the doc. I mean, you said you had a meeting for actually getting into the control tower at Greenham. What kind of things were you weighing up in this discussion? Well, the idea of going into the control tower was spiders because she lived at at a camp that was overlooked that control tower. So spider 
looked at the situation and thought, oh, maybe we could do an action. She came and talked to me because I was kind of known to be someone that sort of thought through actions and all of that. So I went with her. We looked at it and she said, do you think we can do it? And I said, yes. And she said, will you do it with us? And I said, yes. And then the next question was, "Okay, who else? And we discussed and we thought, you know, we have five layers of barbed wire and, and fencing to get through before we can get to the 300 yards or so to the air traffic control tower. We couldn't be very many of us. So we went to an American woman who was staying at the camp, Liz. And because it was an American air traffic control tower, we thought, well, you know, we want to be kind of showing that we are not anti-American. We are together with Americans in trying to stop nuclear weapons. Liz said yes. And that was the three of us. And then we did talk about it and talk it through, decide what what we wanted to do. But our initial thing was really just to hang the banner saying peace on earth off the railing. And so we climbed up and it was really scary because we could see American soldiers with the rifles on their backs working on some some fire trucks in full view of us. Obviously, we kind of assumed that they could see us too, but they had the bright lights pointing on what they were doing. It felt to me as if we were making a lot of noise with our boots climbing up the outside. But again, they just didn't seem to hear or notice us. And when the we put the banner up, it flapped and flapped in the wind. And we were right. well, of, of course, now they're going to come. They're going to arrest us. <laughs> and then they didn't come. And then we were after about an hour, we were feeling really cold. It was bitterly cold there. And that was the point at which we walked you know, right round the top of the air traffic control tower. And we saw there was a little door. And that was when we then had another meeting. And that really was where do we feel okay about doing this? Because if we do this, we're going to face more serious charges, perhaps even charges like, you know, breaking and entering. And in fact, they did initially charge us with burglary. But when we went in, we saw these documents that were about what to do in case a plane crashed or there was a terrorist attack or some other kind of accident or attack involving chemical or biological weapons. And all of this stuff, I mean, it was very scary, but it was all geared towards, you know, getting your buddies out, you know, alerting the U.S. Air Force, making sure that everybody got out of the base in terms of the Americans. Nothing in what we read said alert the british government or alert the 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 emergency the local emergency services there was a quite significant town called newbury right next to greenham common with i can't remember what the population was but it was over 100,000 i think so we wrote greenham women are everywhere and nuclear weapons endanger all of us. And, <laughs> and Spider wrote <laughs> a fandom for Laurie Anderson on her dog, <laughs> which we all laughed about afterwards when we heard about it. <laughs> the camp was established. A small group determined to stay until their voice was heard. We said, OK, on this day, we're going to call on women all over the world. Stop nuclear weapons, stop militarism. We, Greenham Common Women's Peace Camp. As the numbers at Greenham grew, more camps were set up. Eventually, there was a camp at each of the gates of the base. There's so many amazing stories, both in speaking to you and in this documentary. But one thing that seems to emerge speaking to you as well is that do you think there's an aspect that 
women weren't then and possibly now taken seriously enough. And, and that, in a way, almost helped. I think it was after Embrace the Base and definitely after we got into the area that we knew as the silos, the cruise missile silos, that they also called the, the nuclear bunkers on New Year's Day of 1983. And that is when I think they began to take us much more seriously. And I think they had underestimated us before then. But after that, not only did they set up that Dirty Tricks uh, PR unit within the defense ministry that we heard about from the Guardian defense correspondent, but also they really increased the kind of levels of both state violence, evicting us, sending large numbers of police to accompany the bailiffs, to evict us, to tear down anything that we try to, to construct to live in, but also it, much more individual violence. The vigilantes who threw things at us, including a, a firebomb during summer of, I think it was about 84 or 85, also, the, the increased level of direct violence from the soldiers, mostly from American soldiers rather than the British at that time, but not entirely. And of course, when the Met, particularly when the Met would come down to join Thames Valley Police for the cruise missile convoy going out, the violence would be much higher level than we'd experienced in the first couple of years. What kept you going in those times, which must have been really quite scary and worrying and terrifying in parts? I'm very stubborn. Once I had started living there pretty permanently, which really was about the time I took my first action and then had my first court case, and then other decisions followed, like I did actually withdraw. I'd been accepted to do a PhD uh, that involved my looking at women's political participation in Japan. But I couldn't do that while I was at Greenham. So once I'd withdrawn from that, then it was like, well, I've now invested a huge chunk of my life because I'm not going to get those grants. I'm not going to get those opportunities back. I have got to follow this through and make sure that we have we don't have these nuclear weapons make sure that they go try to prevent nuclear war because also although i was not a mother and in fact still am not a mother i already by that time i had 14 nieces and nephews <laughs> because i come from a large family i'm the youngest and so i really loved and cared for future that we were giving to those babies and toddlers and you know young children that my sisters were having and that indeed my friends you know were having because I was of that age and also I just really felt just very very deeply that the women and, uh, and children in, in in Russia and Eastern Europe and across the world they're just like us they're just like us so any weapons in Greenham are pointed at them we're responsible for that and therefore, we're responsible for stopping it. And that was what drove me. And every year, I remade that decision around the time of my birthday, because my birthday was October. And that was when it was begin going to begin to get cold and really wet and, and really, you know, tough physically at Greenham. And I would just talk to myself. I'd go for walks into the woods that were left around the outside of the base 
and just look at the base and look at the woods and think about what was important in life. And out of each each time, it was like, I've got to stay here until at least we get rid of the cruise missiles because they, by that time they'd come. And I didn't think we have to get a treaty at that point. But once we got the treaty, it was like, oh, yeah, well, that makes sense. Now, how can we stop nuclear testing? There are several moments in the film which I think are very, very moving, many of which you're involved with. One is when you described women arriving overnight while you were sleeping and being quiet because they were aware that people were sleeping. And so you woke up to see all these women. That, that was a very powerful image. And, and I love the moment when you describe that and you say, well, this is women, you know, implying that <laughs> we're, we're, you know, thoughtful or whatever. But I, but I wanted to know, what do you think, you know, with that in mind, makes a group of activist women distinct? Well, I do think that just the thoughtfulness of having, you know, after having driven all the way down from Scotland, they must have been wanting just to kind of, you know, be there noisily, but it was the middle of the night and dawn hadn't yet come. And so they were just there with their candles, just so quiet. What makes it distinctive, I think, is when the decision was taken to become women only, I wasn't actually at, at Greenham. I didn't make the decision to go there until that decision was taken. I don't know that I would have, I, I had visited. I probably would have visited again. But what I felt in even just my first week of going there, and remember, I only went there for a week <laughs> and I ended up five <laughs> years. But what I felt there was at, I arrived in the middle of an argument between two very strong women about drugs and, you know, having drugs at the camp, which one woman absolutely didn't want. And the other woman was like, oh, chill. You know, <laughs> she was she was an American. She was going, you know, we're anarchists, you know, <laughs> chill. And it was like, yeah, but we're actually trying to do something. And we need to, you know, keep our keep be responsible for what we're doing. And I was just listening in on this really quite tough discussion. And every so often, a few other women would chip in. And I thought, this is really interesting. This is what I've grappled with for a lot of my life, is how can you be really assertive? What do we need to do to be nonviolent without being passive? Because I'd grown up with people around me, including my parents, actually believing in pacifism. But there were some real problems about what that really meant and here were women at Greenham really you know arguing it so don't imagine it was all sweetness and light it really wasn't it was we were strong women we were um opinionated quite feisty we had come to Greenham because we wanted to stop something absolutely massive like nuclear war and because we didn't have positions of power in the orthodox world. You know, we weren't the political leaders or the, you know, academics that people would listen to. But we needed to inspire all women, all girls. You know, we needed to inspire the every woman that is inside of all the women that we knew. If they knew about nuclear weapons coming into Greenham, if they knew about this new generation, if they thought about it and thought about it in terms of their children and they thought about it in terms of the children of Russians on the other side, they would want to do something to stop it. And so that was important to believe 
that ordinary women could make an absolutely fundamental difference. Then it was all the creativity and the construction of ideas that came out of it that kind of connected in the you know, anti-nuclear side of things with also the real love of and care for the trees that we were living amongst, the, the, the small you know, edges of trees around the base that we were living in, the beauty of nature, thinking about our planet as our mother earth and, and connecting those things up and, and also putting together the reason and passion, you know, rationality and emotion and refusing to be kind of tied into that masculine, feminist, feminine sort of dichotomy that an awful lot of the world still just got, was stuck with. You know, something like the teddy bear's picnic. We were going into the base and onto the runway. The missiles were there the second time we did it. The second time we did it, teddy bear costumes, bunny rabbit costumes covered in honey. Because then when the soldiers go for you and they grab hold of you, they're getting stuck with honey. That is creative female thinking right there, isn't and it? And funny. Yes. And yet disruptive so not exactly. just symbolic but and we called it feminist nonviolence because we didn't want just to suppress fear or anger actually a lot of us were pretty furious about both the mass destruction being threatened on the world but also about the violence that we as women had experienced in our lives or knew of, of women that we cared for who'd experienced and we were like, we're not going to be passive about any of this, but we're also not going to use violence against any of the people who are driving the launchers or, or inside the base. But we are going to be very assertive with them. We are going to disrupt their work and we're going to talk to them every opportunity we have about why they shouldn't be putting nuclear weapons anywhere in the world and why they should be getting rid of them and actually working out how to look after the world together as not just nation states, but as kind of, you know, cooperative international communities. Rebecca, I could talk to you all day, but you're such an inspiration. I want to know what message you have for our listeners at home. Climate destruction, nuclear war and violence against women are absolutely interlinked in terms of military industrial establishment patriarchal power and we as women need to connect on all of those and ourselves just as we are speaking with our voices linking with each other we need to turn it round because we need to save the world and we need to save ourselves and we need to save nature, mother nature and the planet for future generations. Mothers of the Revolution is available now on digital download. So do seek it out on iTunes, Sky, Amazon, etc. And tell your friends about this important doc. And if you've enjoyed listening today, don't forget to like and subscribe to the podcast and share it with your friends. Girls on Film is an HLA production brought to you by executive producer Hedda Archbold, audio producer Emma Butt, assistant producer Heather Dempsey, interns Rosa Herxheimer and Chania Pithia, and our partners for this episode, Mothers of the Revolution. I'm Anna Smith, and I was joined by Rebecca Johnson, Chris Drake, Karina Antrobus, and Angie Erigo. 
Thank you, lovely listeners. Stay safe. Don't wait for directions. Take it in your own hands.